0: Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 27th day of May, 2023, Memorial Day weekend. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and I'm going to start off today with a story that I hope you'll find almost as offensive as I did. Let's call this an adult content warning, but hey, that pretty well applies to anything you're likely to see at a local Target store or on a grocery store shelf nowadays, doesn't it? So here goes. The House Ethics Committee, and how's that for a disgusting misnomer, has concluded a two-year so-called investigation, you know what that means, to cover up is over, into Eric Swallow's Wells affair with Chinese spy Fang Fang. Yep, the Bang Bang with Fang Fang non-investigation is over, and I hope you're sitting down, because you'll never guess what they concluded. No further action will be taken. They didn't sanction the scumbag. They didn't revoke his security clearance. They didn't even kick him off the so-called House Intelligence Committee, for crying out loud. And he still has access to classified information that real Americans aren't allowed to know. Here's Jim Hoff's summary for the Gateway Pundit. Yes, the so-called Ethics Committee has finally concluded officially their two-year sandbag of an investigation into allegations that Eric Swalwell, socialist, communist, democrat, and sellout from California, engaged in the bang-bang with fang-fang communist chinese spy and honeypot you may recall says so the story that a chinese spy raised money for the socialist leftist communist chinese party sympathizer and served as a horizontal intern they didn't put it that way but i think it's a good way too in his congressional office The Chinese National targeted various politicians in the People's Republic of California between 2011 and 2015 at the direction of China's internal spy agency and even had intimate relationships with at least two Midwestern mayors, according to Axios. And it is believed that the Chinese spy in Honeypot had a uh, sexual relationship with Eric Swalwell. Tucker Carlson's team, it says, reached out to Swalwell's office asking if he had an intimate relationship with the horizontal intern in Honeypot. But they replied, and listen to this, they couldn't comment because that information would be classified. On the other hand, I guess for a blowjob, he'd probably give them anything else they wanted to know. In a statement released Monday, signed by the House Committee on Ethics, sick Chairman, Michael Guest, and ranking member Susan Wild. The committee declared that no further action would be taken in connection with the cover-up, they call it a probe here, and I don't think that's the right word, that commenced back in April 2021. The committee concluded that there was insufficient evidence. Maybe because, folks, if you remember the stories, it seems that the Communist Chinese may have offed Fang Fang in a, a plane crash, Well, maybe I shouldn't put it that way. Somebody seems to have shut her up anyway. But one way or the other, kind of hitler Clinton style, there's now insufficient evidence, imagine that, to support allegations that Swalwell had, quote, violated House rules, laws, or other standards of conduct in connection with your interactions with Ms. Christine Fang. In other words, we screw Americans all day, every day, and what you did is no different than what we all get paid for doing. And yeah, that includes with communist Chinese spies. I mean, really, who do you think owns the Oval Office and so much of Congress? And if all that isn't bad enough, folks, here's just a bit, as much as I can stand, of the scumbag's own self righteous statement after he got off scot free. <laughs> If the intent here was to silence me, that is not going to happen. I will continue to be a voice on behalf of my constituents. Well, that is if they're really good and bad, I guess. And a passionate defender of democracy, he said. And since that was never the form of government we actually had, folks, that means, obviously, he's going to continue to rape the Constitutional Republic. Let me summarize this whole disgusting event this way. There are people sitting in the D.C. gulag who took a tour of Congress on January the 6th that committed less dangerous acts of treason against this country and arguably have more integrity and thus more business walking the halls of Congress than this scumbag ever did. Speaking of scumbags, this came out late in the week, and it's almost all good news except for the so-called senator from New York who hates the Constitution for these United States almost as much as he hates specific parts of the Bill of Rights. We'll come back to his bloviations in just a minute. But well, we start with the good news, and actually uh, downright surprisingly good news. The Supreme Court this week, the entire Supreme Court, that's all of them, including this time even those on the far left, they actually got one right, a 9-0 to zero ruling in a case called Sackett v. EPA which essentially overturned one of the most broad and idiotic bureaucratic definitions of the waters of the United States that they've used to try to claim jurisdiction over just about anything where there's any water, any time. Seems the EPA was continuing to further expand their reach over anything that involved the H2O molecule, you might say, A bureaucratic definition for waters of the United States that was so broad, along with other words like wetlands, for years it's been called the glancing goose rule. Want to know what a wetland is? Well, if a glancing goose looks down somewhere, anywhere, and sees water, well, that's one of them. And in this case, the story really is revelatory and interesting. A couple named Michael and Chantel Sackett purchased a small lot in 2004 near Priest Lake in Bonner County, Idaho. In preparation for building a modest home, says the court ruling, they began backfilling their property with dirt and rocks. But a few months later, the EPA sent the Sackets a compliance order informing them that their backfilling violated the CWA because their property contained, oh yeah, say it with me, protected wetlands. And they demanded that immediately the Sackets, quote, undertake activities to restore the site pursuant to a restoration work plan that they provided. And the order threatened the Sackets with penalties of over $40,000 per day if they failed to comply. Because the EPA interpreted, get this, the waters of the United States to include all, that's the key word here, folks, waters that could affect interstate or foreign commerce, as well as any wetlands adjacent to any of those waters. And that meant not just bordering or contiguous, but neighboring. And it even included non-navigable tributaries, things some folks might call a ditch. And basically... (laughs) If water flows into other water, which flows into some other water, and then ends up into something that the EPA claims is theirs, ha-ha, again, they gotcha. In this case, said the EPA, the wetlands on the second slot are adjacent to what they described as an unnamed tributary on the other side of a 30-foot road, basically a ditch, and said tributary feeds into a non-navigable creek, which in turn eventually feeds into Priest Lake. So, as a result... Somewhere way downstream, the Sackets had illegally dumped soil and gravel onto the waters of the United States. And again, here's the good news. The Sackets, after spending who knows how much money, managed to get a ruling from the court in less than two decades. But Barely. Justice Samuel Alito delivered the unanimous opinion of the court, and uh, among other things, he wrote the following. After talking about the success of the Clean Water Act and cleaning up a lot of the nation's rivers, lakes, and streams, there is, he continued, however, an unfortunate footnote to this success story. The outer boundaries of the act's geographical reach have been uncertain from the start. The act applies to something called the waters of the United States. But what does that phrase mean, asked the justice. Does the term encompass any backyard that's Soggy enough for some minimum period of time? And that minimum period of time, folks, seems to be closer to minutes or hours than years. Does it reach mudflats, sandflats, wetlands, slops, prairie, potholes, wet meadows, or playa lakes? How about ditches, swimming pools, or puddles? A quick aside here, folks, and I think the court sees this is not really much of an extrapolation. Some ask, what if you turn on the tap water in your bathroom? And it flows into a pipe, which flows into a sewer, which eventually flows into something that might be called waters of the United States. Ha ha! Gotcha! Well, the Supreme Court seemed to have said, we've had enough of that. Well, Alito and those who concurred with him rejected the EPA's test and imposed one that environmentalists say, oh no, we'll remove millions upon millions of various wetlands and other lands that Big Brother wants to control from federal regulation. Quote, we hold that the CWA, that would be the Clean Water Act, extends to only those wetlands with a continuous surface connection to bodies that are waters of the United States in their own right, so that they are indistinguishable from those waters, wrote Alito, quoting from past court opinions. And he was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Neil M. Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett with the other justices concurring in a separate opinion, agreeing that, at very minimum, the EPA went too far in persecuting that Idaho couple. But again, amazingly and unanimously, 9 to 0. So what kind of anti-constitutional tyrant can not see the idea here of, uh, well, at least the peons have some remaining property rights? Answer, the Chucky doll from New York, the man who hates the Bill of Rights so vehemently that anything that stands in the way of Big Brother's power grab must be rejected with any force necessary. And even though it was a nine-to-zip decision, Chuckie Schumer called the Supreme Court <laughs> a MAGA court. Because I guess but there's one thing he absolutely doesn't want ever to happen, it's uh, make America great again. Or even let America survive for too much longer. Saying, quote, this MAGA Supreme Court is continuing to erode our country's environmental laws. Why, just who do you peons think you are? And that's enough of him. So from there, let's go back and pick up some of the other news of the week, more or less chronologically, starting with the World War III update, things that happened over the weekend. This one comes from Bakhmut, where the actual battle seems to be over. And even though the waystream press doesn't want to talk about it, and the Biden regime, of course, continues to lie about it, it's getting harder and harder to deny. As one European source puts it, one year after Russian forces reclaimed Mariupol, they have now expelled the forces of the Kiev regime from Bakhmut. Which fell on the exact one year anniversary of the fall of Mariupol, May 20th, 2022. And not surprisingly, says one of the summaries, the posture adopted by the UA supporters is exactly the same energy as before. Cringe, cope, excuse making, and Bakhmut's mission is accomplished, they say, swallowing their sobs. Zero Hedges coverage says, Putin congratulates Wagner by name for the first time as Ukraine seeks to reframe the narrative of the Bakhmut defeat. Following Wagner's declaration on Sunday of the capture of Bakhmut, Russian President Vladimir Putin, for the first time since the war began, congratulated the mercenary group there by name for his battlefield victory. And here they even quote the New York Times. State-run Channel 1 newscast cited statements by President Vladimir Putin and Russia's defense ministry that gave Wagner partial credit for capturing the city. They also showed footage of armed men described as Wagner fighters yelling, Bakhmut is ours. The Russian flag, as well as flags of PMC Wagner, which is basically the Russian equivalent of American public-private partner, mercenary defense contractors, have been seen across the central part of the strategic city in the Donetsk region. The big deal here, folks, is that Bakhmut is a center, a hub for regional traffic, transportation, railroad and pipelines, you name it, Distribution of all kinds of things and really does represent a major tactical if not even strategic Defeat in the Ukraine front of World War III. No wonder, say, some analysts, the Biden-Fure's puppet masters, are now openly talking about expedited delivery of F-16 fighters that weren't supposedly even on the table up until this latest failure, but now seem to be on the chopping block to be fleshed down the toilet, along with so many other billions of dollars of munitions and armaments that aren't being used to defend the southern border anyway. And at this rate, won't even be available for anything when they're inevitably really needed. Zero Hedge summarizes it this way, after a grinding fight that lasted over 200 days and with Ukrainian forces now clearly in retreat from the city, which even the D.C.-based Institute for the Study of War is finally acknowledging, it's highly unlikely there will be any, quote, attack from the outside on the now utterly destroyed city, which wouldn't make any sense anyway. Even Zelensky admitted, quote, we're not throwing people away to die, unquote, at least not there, not anymore, at the G7 in Japan. On the treason at home front, we have several stories. Again, none of them really all that surprising. The first one comes courtesy of the Gateway Pundit and Jim Hoft. Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that the FBI is ready to turn over the damning documents confirming criminal bribery schemes involving the big guy himself, unelected fake President Joe Biden. But, ooh, wait a minute, the FBI then told him to go pound sand. On Friday, says the story, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky wrote the FBI demanding they turn over an unclassified document alleging and documenting a bribery scheme involving then-Vice President Joe Biden. Americans, he said, demand truth and accountability. Yeah, sure, just don't hold your breath. Because if he did, he'd have been dead years ago. McCarthy went on Fox News with Maria Bartiromo and said he expects FBI cooperation in releasing the crucial FD-1023 form to Congress that outlines the foreign national bribery scheme. But later Sunday, the FBI told Republicans to go pound sand. And the agency penned a letter to Comer saying, hey, they've been getting away with it all this time. Why, for crying out loud, would they start fessing up now? No, they're not going to be turning over the document. And why are we not surprised? And from the related rigged election front, we've got several stories. I'll start with this one. Courtesy of the Epic Times, all the voters of Nassau County, People's Republic of New York, have been identified as Democrats on their voter ID cards, irrespective of what they actually thought they were, due to a botch that is being blamed on a printing company, as opposed to uh, arguably the usual suspects and probable real perpetrators. This has triggered accusations, says the Tyler Durden summary in Zero Hedge, about sabotaging elections. Who could have thought it? Uh, well, anybody that's been paying attention, unless you get your news from the CNN, WAPO, New York Times, or expect that Twitter is finally going to come clean. All of this ahead of upcoming primaries, which are scheduled for June. Voters of the county, it says, amounting to nearly a million people, began to receive their voter ID cards on Tuesday, with voters supporting Republicans, Independents, or any other political party surprised to see themselves identified as the way their votes are actually going to end up being counted. Well, I put that in there. Democrats, according to NBC. Quote, we're starting to get phone calls from people saying, I'm a registered Republican. I'm a registered conservative. How come I'm being identified as a Democrat? Who changed my registration? And they're actually quite upset about it, said Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman. Hey, just wait, folks, once they figure out that whatever says on their card is the least of the issues, <laughs> because they don't even know that their votes have already been counted that way. There's a lot of confusion, said the county executive, who's a Republican. A lot of people out there are emotionally upset about this. He's pinning the blame on Rochester-based Phoenix Graphics, the printing company hired by the Nassau County Board of Elections to print up the voter ID cards. Actually, your host can't help but think they're just being honest. Maybe they should go to the people that are printing up the ballots and manipulating the electronic counting. Ah, But no, folks. They're gonna keep quiet about that, or keep lying about it, and uh, hey guess what, I've got another story on that same front. Former Deputy National Security Advisor under former President Donald Trump, K.T. McFarland, joined Maria Bartiromo on Wall Street Friday to discuss the Durham report and other things. And in what's called a stunning allegation, McFarland admitted the truth that the FBI, Department of Justice, and CAI are planning to do what they've already been getting away with again and rig the upcoming 2024 U.S. presidential election. As well, according to McFarland, these intelligence-sick agencies, having succeeded in rigging both the 2016 and 2022 presidential elections, and yeah, if you're paying attention, you know they also rigged the recent midterms, among others, they fully intend to keep doing what they've been doing and prevent Donald Trump from getting anywhere near the White House ever again. Quote, we now have black and white evidence that the FBI interfered in the 2016 election when they failed to elect Hillary Clinton. I think she mispronounced it. They set out to destroy the Trump administration, said McFarland. Remember, folks, the criminal FBI dropped suddenly and unexpectedly no less than four uh, alleged investigations into Hillary Clinton and the Crooked Clinton Foundation, according to the Durham report. But McFarland wasn't finished. Go back to 2020, she said. It was the CIA this time that got involved in the 2020 election with those 51 former intel agents and the letter of shame about the Hunter Biden laptop from hell and how it was all Russia, Russia, Russia and disinformation. During the second so-called presidential debate in 2020, the now Biden Fuhrer and hack reporter Kristen Welker tagged team the guy who actually won the election in order to double down on what we now without question know was an absolute bald face lie. At one point, as you probably remember... The senile one interrupted Welker for his pre planned response that was already pre positioned as well to the laptop from hell scandal and told the audience and a gullible American public the following Joe, they're calling it's you simple. a corrupt politician. Nobody, hey, President Trump, the I want to stay hell. on the issue just, of race. We're talking about at the the issue? laptop from hell. President Trump, Nobody. we're talking about race right now, and I do want to stay on the issue of race. President Trump, you I have just. have to respond to that, please. Because, look, Very there clear. are 50 former national intelligence folks, who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this has all the... Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Which, as we now know, turned out to be one of the biggest stinking whopping lies ever told during a presidential debate. Nobody believes it except his and his good friend Rudy Gianni... And now that the damage has been done, the republic has been destroyed, and along with it, the economy, the southern border, and the U.S. military to boot, everybody believes it. The question is, to what effect? And what is going to change as a result? So far, folks, what we're seeing is nothing. Here's a sad story came out over the weekend. Honestly, I didn't see any coverage in the United States about it. And what I do see from... uh, no longer Great Britain, and a rag called the Daily Star over there is kind of disgusting. A high-profile truth-teller, at least among those who recognize the truth when they see it, Dr. Rashid Buttar died under mysterious circumstances. And no, he didn't take the poison poke. Just days, admits the headline in the piece, after claiming he'd been poisoned following his controversial interview with the Clinton That News, I'm sorry, the criminally negligent network, about what this rag calls his COVID pandemic disinformation. And listen to this. Quote, a notorious conspiracy theorist doctor known for his wild takes on the coronavirus pandemic. they didn't even spell it right, claimed that he had been poisoned just a few days before he died, arguably from poisoning. Dr. Rashid Buttar, part of the group that the propagandist and true disinformation folks have named the Disinformation Dozen, died suddenly Saturday, May 20th at the age of 57. And sad as this is, folks, I do have to interject at this point, he may be one of the very few people to die suddenly and unexpectedly in the last couple of years that we know didn't take the Zyklon B. He was, quote, a huge anti-vaxxer and became a cult figure during the pandemic. Why? Because he was trying to save people's lives by telling the truth about um, the biggest bioweapon experiment in human history. He went on record to claim that the COVID pandemic was planned, yeah, sure, and politically motivated. Who could have thought it? The British-born doctor, who spent most of his adult life in the United States, also claimed that, get this, and uh, pay attention, everyone who's had the vaccine would be dead by 2025. Now, remember, folks, he's talking about the real vaccine. Thankfully, a whole lot of people who took the first or second or even the third and fourth shots may... I don't think you can count on it forever. When you keep playing Russian roulette, eventually the cylinder is going to come up with a bullet in it. But maybe at least a lot of them got one or more doses of saline, the placebo. And whether they know it or not yet are almost certainly far, far better off for it. From there, I'm going to go to a story that I think at least ought to raise more than a few eyebrows, and it has to do with true racism, and let's call it Joe Crow, 2023. The University of California, Berkeley, where else, finds itself embroiled in controversy, says another piece from Jim Hoft and the Gateway Pundit. As they executed an exclusive blacks-only graduation ceremony, which coincidentally directly contradicts not only the principles of racial equality and integration, but the written law itself established during the Civil Rights Movement. The African American Studies Department at UC Berkeley announced in March they would be holding their annual black graduation ceremony for students in May. And on Saturday, they held their graduation ceremony for blacks only at Zellerbach Hall at the openly racist UC Berkeley campus. Quote, we're disheartened to see universities like Columbia and now Berkeley veer so far to the left that they're resurrecting Democrat segregationist history, said California College Republicans communications director Dylan Martin to campus reform. Let's go to break now with a piece from the Epic Times. Via an important question, is self-defense, says author Joshua Phillips, becoming illegal? If you or someone you love were threatened or physically attacked, do you even still have the right to defend them? and even more so when police are being defunded and criminals are being re-released on the streets, do you have a right to protect yourself? Do you just have to let bad things happen? Well, in New York City, you seem to. That's the question there on trial, the case of Jordan Neely. If you read the leftist media outlets, you may remember that a 30-year-old black man, street performer and Michael Jackson impersonator, was uh, subdued by a Marine who intervened, and with the help of two other men, put the self-confessed wannabe murder in a chokehold. Neely lost consciousness. Later, he died. Nobody was initially charged, but video of the incident, limited to when Neely had already been restrained, was quickly picked up by the political leftists to play into the country's race narratives. And I'm going to skip over all the hysteria from that score. But here's what you don't hear as much. In 2015, he was convicted of trying to kidnap a 7-year-old girl in Queens, sentenced to four months in jail. In 2021, he was arrested for punching a 67-year-old woman in the face, breaking her nose and orbital bone, as she got off a subway train in New York's East Village. And in the crime that proved to be his last, he got violent on the subway train, threatening people around him until uh, at least a few brave men stepped up and took action. The point here, says author Phillips, is that George Soros, you know the name, finances the campaigns of radical district attorneys who let criminals off the hook, then a criminals killed by people defending themselves when the city's justice system fails, and guess what? They don't go after the perpetrator, they make an example of the victim. Meanwhile, radical groups funded by Soros, imagine that, stage protests while being backed by communist groups tied to the same politician and call for the arrest of anybody that dares to threaten their beautiful wickedness. Self-defense is what's being criminalized. So, ask the author, if nobody's going to protect you, exactly what are your options? Do you just watch people get attacked or risk prison for stepping in to help? I guess, folks, here's where I'll part from the text. I'd say the answer is clear. If you don't step up and do something, we all end up in a place a lot worse than prison. And we'll be right back. Did you write the book of love and- wonder I can think at all and my lack of education has hurt me I can read the writing on the wall. welcome back now to the second segment for this evening I am again your host mark call and let's start this segment off with I guess you'd have to say a bit of whimsy because the alternative is that we're supposed to be really really afraid Yo, Welcome back, and I guess that's really the only way to kick the show off for today. I'm your host, Mark Call, and it's a Tuesday, the 23rd day of May, 2023, and we've got kind of a one-two punch of the Booga Booga Blues, both of them, ironically, from the UK's Daily Mail, and both of them basically asking the question, just how stupid do they think people are? Answer, really, really. The Who's chief Dr. Evil Tedros came out yesterday and told the World Health Assembly, sick, that the threat of another booga 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 public health crisis couldn't be kicked down the road. No, not anymore. And he also claimed that, says the piece, despite the darkest days of the pandemic being now consigned to history. Hey, they made a lot of progress, so a doomsday COVID variant, thank you, Tony Fauci, with the power to send the world back to square one, could still spawn. And you bet betcha, folks, you know it, they've been working hard on it, and if they can get to take the poison poke, they're ninety-nine percent of the way there. In Geneva, Switzerland, doctor Tedro said the threat of another variant emerging that causes new surges of disease and death remains. Ha <laughs> ha and the threat of another pathogen emerging with even deadlier potential remains. And we've got our mad scientists working really, really hard, not only to find it, but uh war game it too. The Daily Mail took it upon themselves to list some of the WHO's major candidates. Not only COVID-19, but Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, Ebola virus and Marburg virus, Lassa fever, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, as well as SARS, something called Nipah and Henipavirus diseases, another thing called Rift Valley fever, oh, this one we've heard about, Zika virus, and as yet, still another unknown disease. I'm sure they'll name it once they get it bioengineered. The key here is, you know it, don't you? Big Brother and who need lots more powers to deal with whatever it is that might be coming out next? So you peons, you eat your bugs, take your poison poke, and bend over, because we got a really big surprise for you. You'll never know what hits you when we finally decide to unleash it. And if you're not cynical by now, folks, i got to say it again, you're not paying attention, and that can be deadly. So here's the other booga, 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 you've got to be kidding. Do they really expect us to believe this story? And i got to admit, this one strains credulity even for a dumbed-down generation. But here we go. A Missouri teenager crashed a U-Haul truck into the White House's security barriers Monday night, and he's been charged by the ever-vigilant FBI, who else, with trying to kill, kidnap, or harm the fake president, or maybe the vice president, or maybe a family member. A 19-year-old kid from Chesterfield, Missouri, I'm not going to give the name, was arrested at the scene after plowing the vehicle into the security barriers around 10 p.m. After crashing the vehicle, I guess he did as instructed, he jumped out of the van, started running around, and waving... What else? A great, big, bright, red and black Nazi flag. I got to wonder, given the state of public education today, did he even know what that was? Or is it just something that one of his handlers gave him? Once in custody, the Manchurian kid told the FBI he wanted to overthrow the government, kill the so-called president, and take over himself. And he's now being held in custody, charged with violations of 18 U.S. Code Section 879, punishable by up to five years in prison. And the Daily Mail has all kinds of pictures and video of the U-Haul trailer. And, of course, the red and black Nazi flag with a swastika on it. Hey, I know, maybe that's supposed to help us forget about the Nashville Tranny Manifesto that you're never going to see. This is more exciting, isn't it? Even if it's laughably transparent and kind of begs the question, just how stupid do they think Americans really are? By the time we get around to Thursday's news, folks, I had to admit that all the stories out there, at least when it comes to the waste stream... Everything they were pushing was either an outright, in-your-face, transparent lie or something we should have heard a long time ago and have heard over and over again that the Waste stream keeps trying to tell you didn't really happen and it's a conspiracy theory besides. Meanwhile, they're still working really hard to kick off Civil War 2.0 and get World War III already in progress to go outright nuclear. So just to illustrate the point, a couple of quick stories. Again, we've heard them all before, but at least it uh, helps us to set the stage. First, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia joins Steve Bannon on Wednesday on his War Room show to discuss, hey, here's a shocker, ongoing deep state corruption. Again, it's not like we didn't know it, and it's not like, in fact, it hasn't been clear. It's just that here's another one of those things the Waste Room will ignore. MTG told Steve Bannon that the Treasury, kind of like the FBI, is holding on to documents that would prove a level of corruption that most Americans simply wouldn't believe anyway. Because they think what they hear from the criminally negligent networks is news. Would you believe Hunter Biden and his firms were paying accounts known to be running prostitution rings, in other words, human trafficking. (gasps) Tell me something we didn't know and tell me something they're going to actually report on. Here's how she put it. Let me be clear. It's not just us labeling this stuff as human sex trafficking. These are the words she said used in the reports and also uses terms like prostitution rings related to Hunter Biden and his law firm, transactions, paying people who were Wells Fargo customers, involved in a, quote, known prostitution ring in what appears to be alleged human sex trafficking. Again, she's quoting from the reports, and uh, are we really that surprised? Well, here's another one, folks. We know now that St. Barry Obama himself, since before the rigged election in 2016, that obviously wasn't rigged quite well enough was making sure the FBI-CIA, so-called intelligence agency, hit or a coordinated cover-up of the criminality was uh, going off as planned. And in spite of the fact that it hadn't been a conspiracy theory, it's been a fact for years at this point, and lots of innocent people had not only gone to jail, they're being convicted for daring to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The real criminals are not only not wearing orange jumpsuits, much less being tried for treason, they're still drawing a six or who knows how many extra zeros public-funded pension to boot. And here's one more example of what I'm talking about. It's actually a very good story written by Jim Hoff for the Gateway Pundit. But still, it's the kind of thing that... We should have known, literally years ago. America First Legal, it begins, posted a lengthy Twitter thread on Wednesday. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Is it still up? Exposing the criminally evil State Department's so-called GEC, or Global Engagement Center, which has been carrying out U.S. government propaganda through various public, private media partner organizations. Their stated mission is to address foreign adversaries that attempt to undermine U.S. interests. Trouble is, folks, if you understand what foreign means in the context of a constitution, the American people are foreign to the government that has taken over in the deep state swamp today. And yeah, that means they're targeting a lot more than just what real native-born Americans mistakenly believe are foreign adversaries. The summary, though, tells us the rest of what we probably should have figured out by now. America First Legal has uncovered a vast censorship network funded by, are you sitting down, the U.S. State Department, Bill Gates, George Soros, and a whole lot of others that targeted, censored, and they say at least discredited various independent media outlets, challenging whatever it is that Big Brother declares to be the official narrative. Don't you dare do that, or we'll send you to George Orwell's Ministry of Love and get you reprogrammed. And from there, one more bit of arguably good news before we go in an entirely different direction today. A new Rasmussen Reports survey, says another piece from TGP, reveals that a majority of Americans have finally awakened. And they believe, who could have thought it, that the media favors Democrats and is truly, quote, the enemy of the people. This was a survey conducted May 16th through 18th with just over a 1,000 likely U.S. voters Survey questions included, do you trust the political news you're getting? Uh, how about, are you stupid or just playing crazy? Number two, does news media coverage of politics generally tend to favor Democrats or Republicans? Or how about just both wings of that same evil bird of prey? Or is it political coverage in the news media, they say, that's mostly neutral and balanced? Finally, do you agree or disagree with this statement? The media are, quote, truly the enemy of the people. Well, the survey showed 30% of likely voters say they trust the political news they're getting. That's one in three at best. While 52% are a bit more on top of things. They don't trust political news at all, says Rasmussen in their summary. It's a mind-blowing damnation of the regime press. The only exception... Joe Biden, strong approvers, which is probably just another synonym for senile nowadays, absolutely trust the news that they're sucking down right along with their Kool-Aid. The survey also noted that 59%, almost two-thirds of American voters, view the media as, quote, truly the enemy of the people. And that's a new all-time high in once-free America. Well, folks, one of the things that the waste stream is just fixated about because you should be afraid, be very afraid of any so-called resolution other than more of exactly what we've been getting is the so-called debt ceiling debate. Your host has noted for literally, uh, well, as long as I've been doing radio, that if we actually had a constitution, we could never have a debt ceiling because we could never have dishonest weights and measures and all the crap that's unconstitutional to begin with that has pushed a budget that shouldn't have actually existed the way that it does now into a territory where it can simply mathematically and without question never ever even remotely be repaid. This has been said for years, and it's true. Fully 90% or so of what's called federal government spending could never even exist if there was actually an Article One, especially a Section 7, 8, 9, or 10, as part of the Constitution for these United States. And that starts with arguably not so much as one three-letter executive branch agency. But we're way, way beyond that today, and there's a whole different set of lies that are out there, and I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about them. This is a great piece that's representative of a number of folks that have examined exactly how far off the rails the budget process and big lies around it have gotten from Ryan McMakin via the Mises Institute, also Zero Hedge, Tyler Durden, and so forth. The three lies, it's entitled, that they're telling you about the debt ceiling. Yep, negotiations over increasing the federal debt ceiling continue in the swamp, as has occurred any number of times over the past two decades or more. Republicans and Democrats are presently using increases in the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip to dupe the rubes and at least supposedly negotiate how federal tax dollars will be spent. Now, ironically, folks, there's no need for federal taxation at all, since they can simply print without limit. The real point of federal taxation is to try to convince you that uh, they really can't do that. And indeed, they would have a lot harder time getting through the machinations and uh, selling the lie if it wasn't for the claim that at least your tax dollars are doing something other than just delaying the inevitable. In other words, look at it this way. This money must have some value, goes the sales pitch, because we really do have to have yours. And besides which, if you were competing with us to buy things of real value based on your real hard work and contributions, that would expose the lie that much sooner, too. But most of this says McMakin is theater. And we certainly know how these negotiations inevitably always end. The debt ceiling is always increased. Massive amounts of new federal debt are incurred. And federal spending continues its upward spiral to infinity as the dollar continues to have new zeros added to its increasingly worthless status. In fact, since the last time we endured a major delay over the debt ceiling back in 2013, the national debt has nearly doubled, soaring from $16.7 trillion fiat bucks 10 years ago to almost twice that, $32 billion in twenty twenty three and over that same time period, federal spending has increased more than eighty percent I won't bother you with all the numbers because it kind of boggles the mind with all the zeros that keep it mad. But here we are again, with policymakers essentially discussing how long it'll take for the national debt and federal budget to double once again. And as far as the swamp creatures in Washington are concerned, that's just fine. The debt ceiling will rise sizably. We know this because what really matters, so far as the so-called policymakers are concerned, is that the taxpayer gravy train never stops. Or at least taxpayers continue to think that they're doing something while they print money like there's no tomorrow. Equally important is that the federal government not default on any of its massive debt to ensure continued access to cheap debt and thus massive amounts of deficit spending now and forever, at least until people wake up to the inevitable. To take this narrative at face value, however, says McMakin, we got to buy into some big myths that policymakers are quite enthusiastic, along with their captive public-private partners in the press, about repeating The lies persist, says the author, because the regime needs to convince the voters and the taxpayers (laughs) that no matter what happens, no major changes to the tax and spend, tax and spend, and print, print, print status quo can never be allowed to occur. So, he says, let's take a look at three of these big myths now. Number one, the Republicans, the rhinos especially, they want austerity. And you have to understand this right up front. In Washington, when politicians use the word cut, it doesn't mean what real Americans think. They're instead talking about reductions in the rate of increases in spending. Now, this is easier if Americans are completely mathematically illiterate because they think that cutting the rate of increase is somehow even remotely related to an actual cut in the thing itself. It's like having your foot on the accelerator in a car and rapidly moving from 30 to 50 to 70 to 100 miles per hour towards a cliff or a brick wall. And then thinking that if I just back off the accelerator a little bit and don't keep accelerating quite as rapidly, when I hit the cliff here, everything will be fine. Even if you quit accelerating but don't actually reduce velocity or even position (laughs) to go one mathematical step further, when you hit the end, it's an ugly scenario. McMakin notes it this way, if the Pentagon spending has been increasing at 2% per annum, which has in fact been the average over the past decade, then a net increase next year of 1.5% instead of 2% is announced as a cut. It's not. It's still an increase over what was of 1.5%. So it's not a cut at all. But since they can print money to infinity anyway, any reduction in what they were planning on spending must be a cut, right? Right. That's the basic premise of what we're seeing now when advocates of limitless increases in the debt bemoan cuts to anything from Social Security to any other welfare programs. In the current debate, Republicans say they want less spending than last year for this 2023 fiscal year and then a cap on spending at a 1% increase each year, which is simply not a cut. Period. End of story. There are a lot more words that basically are also used to deceive, like sequestration and the like. But in other words, any claim, says McMakin, that Republicans actually want to cut spending is only true as long as you accept the bogus definitions that aren't really consistent with either math or fiscal sanity to begin with. Number two, the U.S. has never, ever, not in its long, sordid history, ever defaulted. Central to the debt ceiling and budget debate, notes make is the oft-repeated claim, which, remember, the Hitlerian big lie says that if you just keep repeating the big lie long enough, people will start thinking it's true anyway. So yes, the repeated claim is that negotiations must be concluded immediately to ensure the U.S. does not miss payments on any of its debt. That would be a default, and the U.S. has never, ever defaulted or missed a payment, which is, in fact, Surprise, an out-and-out lie. The U.S. has absolutely, indisputably defaulted before, he notes, and so does history. This began in the wake of the American Revolution, when the U.S. first defaulted on domestic loans. After the new Constitution was put in place in 1790, the new central government renegotiated past debt at less favorable terms for investors, which is, yeah, say it with me, a default. They didn't get what they were promised. Then there was Lincoln's default on the greenback in 1862. The original greenbacks were $60 million in demand notes, which were redeemable in species, i.e. gold or silver. Less than five months later, January of 1862, the U.S. Treasury defaulted on those notes by failing to redeem them on demand. Perhaps the most egregious case, and uh, at least it's one of them, was the Liberty Bond default of 1934. The U.S. was contractually obligated to pay back its debt on those bonds in gold. America's first fascist, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, decided to default on the whole of the domestically held debt by refusing to redeem in gold to Americans and devaluing the dollar by 40% against foreign exchange. In other words, folks, he went out and stole the American people's gold, replaced it with paper, and then said, hey, now that we've got all the gold, we're going to allow the price of gold, for those that didn't get shafted anyway, to go up dramatically against those same U.S. dollars we just shoved down your throats. In other words, Americans took a 40% hit on all of their savings that were confiscated by the Liberty Bond default and the associated machinations during the first part of the Great Depression and the Roosevelt regime. By refusing to make good on its end of the deal, it was in fact another default, not to mention a whole lot of theft, too. By the way, in August of 1971, Tricky Dick Nixon did the same thing to people holding paper dollars i.e. foreign banksters, that thought those were redeemable or as good as gold. Nope. And that default said, nope, they're not. You can't get the gold. We're just going to keep it. (laughs) And ironically, folks, looks like they didn't anyway. And lots of folks forget this one. There was a short default in 1979. And as Jason Zweig noted, in April and May of that year, amid computer malfunctions, heavy demand from small investors, and in the wake of a congressional debate over raising the debt ceiling, who could have thought it, the U.S. failed to make timely payments on some $122 which was real money in those days, in Treasury bills. The Treasury characterized the problem as a delay. (laughs) Isn't this cute? We just changed the meaning of words. Ever heard that before? They called it a delay rather than a default. And while the error affected only a fraction of 1% or so of U.S. debt, short-term Treasury interest rates, then around 9%, jumped 0.6 entire percentage points, and the U.S. was promptly sued by bondholders for breach of contract. So the next time you see the Biden Fuhrer or Janet Yellen go on television and insist that the U.S. has never defaulted, just remember their lips are moving. From there, on to Big lie number three, default is the end of the world. Any talk, says the author, of default is sure to bring the usual predictions of economic devastation. But those who've lived long enough to see a financial crisis or two will know how this works. As soon as the first signs of trouble, or maybe the 27th nowadays, in the economy appear, the regime lines up their so-called experts to tell us that unless Big Brother is empowered to spend endlessly on anything they want, especially bailouts and stimulus, then the economy will collapse, unemployment will surge, and hell on earth will ensue. Now, ironically, as I I've noted for a long time, all of those things have been baked into cake at this point. The only question is just when and will it be acknowledged after it's already happened? The taxpayers, though, have certainly heard all of this repeatedly. We saw it back in 2008 and 9, as the regime insisted it must be free to hand over trillions of bucks in new bailout funds to wealthy banksters, automakers, financiers, and the like. We were told that the central bankers must be able to print up trillions of new bucks so as to buy up government bonds and mortgage-backed securities and pad the balance sheets of the investor class. And we were told this would fix the economy. Naturally, when the recession turned out to be the worst since 1982, the same experts then said, without any actual evidence whatsoever, that things would have been worse without all these bailouts. Didn't we hear the same thing about the poison poke? Yeah, it's killing people left and right, but oh, think how much worse it would have been if we hadn't been able to have our way with you. In other words, the regime trots out the same scare tactics every time they want a new series of bailouts or immense new spending. Trump hysterically said the same thing when he demanded passage of his $2.2 trillion COVID rescue plan. We're told there's just no alternative and any opposition is reckless. So we must be able to approve any and all new spending now and then deal with the consequences later. Eventually, someday, but later never comes because the strategy is always just to kick the can a bit further down the road. And to not do so, say the experts, will destroy the economy. Ironically, ignoring the fact that they have destroyed it over and over again, and people don't even realize how bad it's already gotten. Meanwhile, we're at the point now where the mathematics has become not only undeniable, but unmanageable as well. It's clear at this point, says McMakin, that the only strategy the Fed, Gov and the Federal Reserve have for dealing with all of this is to inflate the dollar away to zero with easy money, so as to bring interest rates back down and pay back the debt in devalued dollars, or simply not pay it back at all, but make sure that they get out of the way of the train before the American dumbed-down public figures it out. Because here's the real problem. Paying back debts with devalued dollars is, in fact, a default. But this method at least helps hide the fact, like they have done so effectively up until now. Make no mistake. When the U.S. government finally chooses to manage its debts by inflating away the dollar, that, too, is a default. And the author doesn't go here, folks, but I have and will again. This is what Ludwig von Mises called the crack-up boom. When the average American finally figures out that the paper dollars or the fiat bits in their so-called accounts are never, ever, so long as they live, going to be worth as much any time in the future as they are today, they're going to start treating it like the old maid. And want to get rid of them just as fast as they possibly can. The velocity of money, as it's called, will increase, and the uh, crack-up boom is on. Hyperinflation's off to the races, and that, folks, is when the real nastiness is only just getting started. Why? Because if you go back and look at history, you'll see that one of the most corrosive things for a society, perhaps even worse than having trannies on the cannies and all kinds of other stuff being slammed down our throats almost on a daily basis, is the kind of erosion to civil society that happens when people realize everything they've worked for, everything they hoped to give their kids is being destroyed right before their eyes. And at a rate that they can't even really begin to get their heads around. And then they get desperate, and things get truly ugly. So for those with eyes to see, the time to start getting prepared is now.